This entire conference is wrapped up in the words for such a time as this. And that's a phrase that actually comes out of Esther's life. And so we're going to go back and we're going to catch the backstory of Esther. So you can pull out the notes for the keynote address. And we're going to walk through the life of Esther. Esther was a Jew who was not born in Israel. In fact, as far as we can tell, Esther never visited Israel one time in her life. She lived all of her life away from the nation of Israel. See, the Babylonians had captured and conquered the nation of Israel. And according to historians, it was a brutal and bloody battle. And they killed hundreds of thousands of of Jews in one battle. And those that survived, they broke down the walls of Jerusalem and they tied them together with chains in long human trains and they forced them to march 700 miles from Jerusalem to the capital of the Babylonian Empire, the city of Babylon. Many of them could not make that trip and didn't survive. And when someone died, they simply cut them out of the chain and kept moving. Uh, To say the least, it was very inhumane. Those that survived and made the trip were then assigned out and purchased by wealthy families in the Babylonian Empire, and they became slaves. Some of them were fortunate enough to be able to put together enough money to buy their freedom eventually, and they were able to live as commoners among the Babylonians. Esther's family was one of those families that had earned and purchased its freedom. And that's the good news. The bad news is at an early age, both of Esther's parents died and she was orphaned in a foreign country. Fortunately for her, she had an uncle. His name was Mordecai and Mordecai adopted Esther. Anybody know Esther's other name? Hadassah, yes. He adopted little Esther and brought her into his family and raised her as as his own daughter. And that's the end of chapter 1 of Esther's life. Chapter 2 begins with the king of the empire looking for a new queen. He had banished the old one, and if you want to know the details about that, you'll just have to read the book of Esther in the Bible. It's a fascinating story with lots of intrigue. But the king is looking for a new queen, and so the edict goes out, and and people start searching for the most beautiful young virgins in the empire, and they are summoned to the palace for a contest. And the eventual winner of the contest receives a marriage proposal from the king. Now follow me uh, here. We have a very eligible bachelor. We have a bunch of beautiful young women. There's a contest. And the winner gets a proposal from the bachelor. You know, not much has changed in 3,000 years. Yeah. Chapter 2 ends. Yes. Chapter 2 ends with Esther winning the contest and receiving a marriage proposal from the king, and she ends up the queen of the empire. Chapter 3, the plot thickens, definitely takes a wrong turn, because the king's chief advisor was a guy by the name of Haman, and for reasons, again, that you will have to read the book of Esther in the Bible to find out, Haman hates Mordecai. 
And he hates him so deeply that he decides he's not only going to kill Mordecai, he's going to kill Mordecai on all of his relatives. And then he thinks on that for a minute and thinks, no, that's not big enough. I'm going to kill Mordecai, all of his relatives, and all of the nation of, of, of Jews that are in the Babylonian Empire. I'm going to wipe out the entire nation. We're, we're, this is genocide. It's legal genocide. So he tricks the king into signing an edict that would banish and kill all of the Jews. But Haman is missing a very valuable piece of information. He has no idea that the queen, the newly crowned queen, is also the adopted daughter of the guy that he hates. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. And uh, that's where you have the, the scriptures in your notes. Mordecai told Hathak, that's after Esther's chief attendant, the whole story including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. One of the ways that Haman got the king to sign this edict was he volunteered to pay the expenses that would, that would be involved in carrying out the edict. And Mordecai gave Hathak a copy of the decree issued in Susa. Now Susa was the new capital of the Babylonian empire. And, and it called for the death of all the Jews. And he asked Hathak to show it to Esther and explain the situation to her. He also asked Hathak to direct her to go to the king and beg for mercy and plead for her people. So Hathak returned to Esther with Mordecai's message. The, the solution seemed like a slam dunk. Esther, you're the queen. You go in and talk to your husband and explain that the edict he just signed is going to require that his newly crowned queen is put to death and everybody that she knows and loves. I mean, what king in his right mind wouldn't reverse that edict? It seemed like a slam dunk. But there's always complications every time you step into a place in history. So look at Esther's response. Esther told Hathak to go back and re relay this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out the golden scepter. And then there's this added bit of intrigue and the king has not called for me to come to him for some 30 days. I'm guessing they didn't have a really close and intimate marriage relationship. What do you think? Yeah. So Hathak gave Esther's message to Mordecai. Now it's in Mordecai's response that we get our theme for the day. Take a look at what Mordecai says to her. So Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you are in the palace, you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, Deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. Now because Mordecai and Esther believed God against all odds, and because Esther was able to, uh, chose to put her life on the line, both Mordecai and Esther stepped into their place in history. And you know, they are still remembered today. In one of the trips that we made to the nation of Israel several years back, our, our guide said, hey, pull over the bus, the tour bus. And so we pulled over the tour bus, and he said, look at these kids out here. 
And the kids were going down the road, and they would walk every little bit, and they would say something, and then they would all spit on the side of the road. And then they would walk, and they would say something, and then they would all cheer and yell. And then they would walk and say something, and they would spit. And he said, you know what this is? Today is, is the Feast of Purim. And so they're walking down the road, and whenever they say Haman, they all spit on the side of the road. And whenever they say Esther or Mordecai, they all cheer. And, the, and their teacher is teaching them the story of Esther and Mordecai and how God saved their nation through those two people. They stepped into their place in history. Now, the reason God put this story in the Bible isn't so that you and I would be intrigued by a sort of ancient um, bachelor TV show. But the reason God put this in the Bible is so that you and I could pick up a challenge. And there's a great challenge, and there are three great promises that are, that are carried in this story, and they are huge for us. And the challenge is this. The challenge is that you and I would step into our place in history. And we're going to talk a lot about that over the next few minutes. That you and I would literally, just like Esther stepped into her place in history, and like Mordecai stepped into his place in history, and like Noah stepped into his place in history, and Abraham did, and Moses did, God has a place in history. It's all earmarked for you, and it's all earmarked for me, and it's all earmarked for us as a church. And Converge is about you individually stepping into your place in history and us as a church stepping into our place in history and stepping into it fully. You know, we're, we're involved in this two-year take-hold initiative, and we're taking hold of the life Christ has for us, right? I'm excited about that, and we're, we're, we're doing that in so many different ways, but taking hold of the life Christ has for us is a subset of the larger picture. It's actually taking a step into our place in history. And if we don't take a hold of the life Christ has for us, we don't get to step into our place in history. But you could take hold of the life Christ has for you in terms of the things we've talked about without actually considering now that I'm walking with God and now that I'm meeting God on a daily basis and now that I'm learning to be discipled by Christ, what's my place in history. What is it God really wants to do through me? And for us as a church to consider what's our place in history? And what's the assignment God has for us? And how can we step into that and step into that fully? So that's the challenge. Now, the promises are these three. The first promise is this, that nothing ever takes place in our life that takes God by surprise. When Mordecai read the decree and he saw that his whole nation was going to be killed, it took him by surprise. But it didn't take God by surprise. And Mordecai goes, you got to go, you got to go talk to Esther about this. She needs to know about this because I think it's going to take her by surprise. And it did take Esther by surprise, but it didn't take God by surprise. And one of the great promises in Scripture, and you need to remind yourself of it often, and as you work with people in your life groups and in your ministry, and even as you train your own children and, and, and prepare them for life, one of the greatest things you can convey to anybody is nothing is going to take place in your life 
that God doesn't know about ahead of time. And further, he has a plan for it. And that leads us to the second great promise. And the second great promise is this. God's plan always ends with God's people in a good space. Now the journey is not always easy. And there will always be challenges and there will be setbacks and there will be things that you and I need to overcome. But if you stay with God and you stay with God's plan, eventually all of God's people end up in a good space. And that's the deal. Not only has God a full awareness of what's going to take place in our life, but he has a plan for it. And it's not, it's not going to overwhelm him. And he'll make sure it doesn't overwhelm us. And it's a good plan. And it's a plan that ends with us in a place of freedom. Even if we were to be martyred for our faith, God has a plan for our family. Look at Esther. Her parents both died when she was young. We would look at that and say, that's tragic. And to be sure, that was huge. But God had Mordecai ready. And Mordecai took her into his home. And I love how the Bible says, he raised her as his own daughter. And in fact, she's the only one of Mordecai's children that we read about in Scripture. And he loved her. God had a plan. Even in the toughest part of Esther's life, God had a plan for her. Mordecai knew that God had a plan. And so the third promise is this. God always uses his people in significant ways to bring about his plan. I don't know if you're, from, if you're aware of this. I know it was sort of a, I needed to be made re-aware of it, if that's actually a word. God never does anything on his own. He just doesn't. Life was always designed to be a partnership between God and his people. God doesn't save anybody on his own. God's never written the message of salvation in the sky and given a, a special message to one person. He doesn't do that. Even the Apostle Paul, when, when Christ appeared to him with that blinding light, Jesus never told him how to become a Christian. He said, Paul, Saul, at that time you get up, you go into the city of Damascus to the street called Straight. You stay at this house and I'm going to send somebody to you. God never does anything on his own. I can't explain why, because I'm pretty sure God would do a better job than any of us, right? But he chooses to lead his eternal kingdom on this earth through people. Is that huge? Yeah, that's our place in history. If God did it on his own, you and I wouldn't have a place. We would have nothing to do that has any eternal significance. But God said, I'm going to draw my people in. And then I'm going to turn around, I'm going to equip them, and I'm going to deploy them into leadership and service in my kingdom. And those who are willing to come together and to be equipped and to be deployed in leadership and service get to walk in partnership with God in ways that are truly life-changing and have eternal significance, and they get to step into their place in history. And that's why we're here. 
to more fully step into our place in history. So I want us to make three declarations. I'm going to ask us to make them out loud because I want the truths of these declarations to sink deep down into our hearts. And I'm going to ask you to say them out loud. You can fill in the blanks later, but I want you to say them out loud. And I want you, I just want it to ring in your ears throughout the rest of this weekend and the coming weeks. And here they are. Ready? Let's read them together. This is our time in history, this is our place on the earth, and this is our opportunity to stand and deliver. Let's say it again. This is our time in history, this is our place on the earth, and this is our opportunity to stand and deliver. Do you realize that you only get to live once? This is the only time in history you have. This is it. If you don't do it in your lifetime, God's not going to do it through you. This is your one and only life. This is our time in history. In the thousands of years of history that, that the earth has, however many thousand it ends up to be, you and I have this one little chunk of history about 60, 70, or 80 years of productivity at the max. And this is our only little chunk of history. But it's huge. It's all we got. This is our place on the earth. You know, through a set of circumstances way too complex to get into here, God has guided us to this place. In the same way that God took that moving star and he moved the Magi from the east and brought them to the feet of Jesus in ways just as mysterious and miraculous, God has used a different set of circumstances in every single person's life who's sitting here today and he has brought you to this church and to this area of the world. Do you believe that? Yeah, it's true. And God has brought us here and he has assigned us at least for this chapter of our life, this space on the earth. And this is the place that he wants to influence through us. This is the place he wants to do his work through us. This is the place we have the most opportunity to stand and deliver the good news that God is good. Because most people don't start with that as their default setting. We get to deliver the news that God is good. And that he has a wonderful offer of salvation and grace through his son Jesus. And that he has a wonderful message of eternal life and of transformation. And that he wants to deliver people from everything that binds them and that limits their life. And that keeps them from stepping into their place in history. And experience life, experiencing life in all of its fullness. This is our time in history. This is our place in the earth. And this is our opportunity to stand and speak into people's lives the amazing truth of Jesus Christ and to watch God do things in their life nobody else could do. That's why I want you to understand those three declarations. So I want to end with three questions. And I hope these questions move you as much as they've moved me. The first question is this. If not now, when? Can you think of a more convenient or opportune time to share the good news of Jesus than right now? 
Can you think of a better time to be in ministry than right now? There's no better time than now. If not now, when? If not us, whom? I'm going to make a statement that I don't mean to be negative about any church, and I don't mean at all to be egotistical about this church. I believe it to be true. I don't know of a church in this area that is better equipped to reach the lost than new life. Do you? I don't know one. I don't know of a church that God has put more passion in. I don't know of a church that God has better equipped. I don't know of a church that has more potential to share the good news of Jesus than God has given us. So I would ask us, if not us, who do we think God's going to use? I think it's a privilege to be that group. And then last of all, if not for Christ, for what? Every one of us in this room is living for something. Can you name a single cause that would be more worthy of your life than the cause of Christ? Can you think of anything you could invest in? Would you be willing to trade your life to be a 49er fan in the Super Bowl? Would you be willing to invest thousands? What is it that the average seat is costing in the Super Bowl? Was it something like $6,000 a seat? <laughs> okay. You know, we're going to haul out some statistics next week, and I'm so excited about it, I can, I can hardly contain myself. Um, but I will. <laughs> okay? But I will. It's a report card on our church. And there's going to be some really fun stuff there. And I get really excited about it until I turn around and read that people are willing to pay $6,000 to watch one football game. And that's more than most people give to our church in a year. And when we think we're enthusiastic, that's a gut check. Does that make sense to everybody? And I'm not here to make us feel, I want us to understand that God has put within our human spirit the ability to get all fired up and all jacked up about something and to get enthusiastic about it and to become a fanatic, which is the short, which is the long word for fan, okay? I want us to be fans of Jesus. Does that make sense to everybody? This is our time in history. This is our place on the earth. This is our one and only opportunity to stand and deliver. And I would ask, if not now, when? If not us, whom? And if not for Christ, for what would we possibly live? Let's pray. Father, sometimes we just get touched to our core by how good you are. And how awesome it is to be saved and to be put into a place of ministry and to be equipped in the wonderful ways that you've enabled us to be equipped and to call us together on a day like today where we get to invest the entire day and to be enriched by you and have you pour into our lives and, and, and to walk deeper and more closely with you, not because we have to, but because it's the absolute best way to live.
And so we just want to come and say thank you. Would you pour into our lives a richness and an abundance that when we leave this place today, we would be fuller than when we got here. And we would be more clearly directed than when we got here. We would be more closely attached to you than when we got here. Father, would you make us increasingly aware that this is our time in history. This is our place on the earth. And this is our opportunity to stand and deliver. We pray it in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen.